Hi guys, and welcome to Hauntedology. I'm your host, Megan, and I cannot wait to dive into this next episode. It is my belief that every city has a story to tell, and it's our job to listen. So let's see what this special city has to tell us today. Hi guys, so we are switching from a dose of knowledge to hauntedology. Season one, I kept the most listened episodes of a dose of knowledge because people seem to like them and I didn't want to just flat out delete them and a few of the interviews took a lot of effort and collaboration and I want to be respectful to those who helped out. So those are staying and that's going to be our season one but season two is going to be all about my city, the city of Savannah. You see, I live in Savannah, Georgia. And it is said to be the most haunted city in the United States of America, above Charleston and New Orleans. And that's saying something, because I always thought until doing some research that Savannah was behind New Orleans and Charleston. But it's even mentioned in a Charleston ghost walking tour that I took a few years back that they are second to only Savannah in being the most haunted city. And I did a little digging and found out that it is true. A lot of people regard Savannah as being more haunted than New Orleans or Charleston. So we're going to start with Savannah because it's said to be the most haunted and it is my beloved city. So let's dive in and see what secrets and mysteries and spooky tales my city has to offer us all. We're going to start off the Savannah season by talking about the history and leading our way to the ghost stories. Each episode should have one just because this is Savannah. And as we've said, Savannah is the most haunted city in the U.S. So what's a good Savannah story without a ghost follow through, right? So first off, I want to start by talking about the Revolutionary War era. Our history goes all the way back to there. And so does our deaths. I mean, with war comes death, and this was no other exception. So, the Siege of Savannah is really where this starts, but it was actually the Second Battle of Savannah. So, a year before, the city of Savannah had been captured by British Expeditionary Corps under Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. The siege itself consisted of joint Franco-American attempt to retake Savannah from September 16th to October 18th, 1779. So almost a year later. So they would lose Savannah and then on September 16th, 1779, they would begin to attempt to retake their city back. So on October 9th, a major assault against British siege works failed. During the attack, Polish nobleman Brigadier General Casimir Pulaski led the combined cavalry forces on the American side, and he was mortally wounded. 
With the failure of the joint attack, the siege was abandoned, and the British remained in control of Savannah until July 1782, near the end of the war, pretty much. So, in 1779, more than 500 recruits from Saint-Dominique, which is the French colony back then, and is actually present-day Haiti, with their 500 recruits under the overall command of French nobleman Charles Hector Comte d'Estaing, fought alongside American colonial troops against the British Army during the Siege of Savannah. This actually was one of the most significant foreign contributions to the Revolutionary War. The French colonial force had been established only six months earlier and included hundreds of soldiers of color, in addition to white soldiers and a couple black slaves. So everybody was fighting in this war. And it really was, it was really significant, especially in this time period, for who all they had out there fighting. The armies included American forces that were commanded by Major General Benjamin Lincoln and consisted of between 5,050 soldiers. And the British forces were commanded by General Augustine Prevost and they consisted of somewhere between 3,200 soldiers. Casualties. So the casualties were estimated to be on the American side, 244 killed, 584 wounded, and 120 captured. The British casualties were estimated to be only about 40 killed, 63 wounded, and 52 missing. Obviously, the outcome was that the result of the siege was a British victory. So, following all the failed campaigns in the northern U.S., the British military planners decided that they had to recoup and develop a new strategy. This is when they decided to embark on a southern strategy to conquer the rebellious colonies. With the support of loyalists in the south, their first step was to gain control of southern ports of Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina. In December of 1778, an expedition took Savannah with modest resistance from an ineffective militia and Continental Army defenses. So the Continental Army was then forced to regroup. And by June 1779, the combined army and militia forces guarding Charleston numbered between five and 7,000 men. Major General Benjamin Lincoln commanding these forces knew that he could not recapture Savannah without naval assistance. So if you know anything about the layout of Savannah, we're obviously a port city. And we have barrier islands that are between us and you know, the Atlantic. So, you really have to have a Navy to defend and take the city of Savannah. And he knew this. So, what he did was he turned to the French. And they had actually entered the war as an American ally in 1778. So, the French Admiral Comte d'Estaing spent the first part of 1779 in the Caribbean, where his fleet and a British fleet would literally just sit there and monitor each other's movements. And so he decided to take advantage of this and ended up capturing Granada in July before acceding to American requests for support against operations in Savannah. So it's around September 3rd, and an uncharacteristically early arrival 
happens because during this period, much as it is today, there's still a substantial risk for seasonal hurricanes. But the seas must have been calm during this period because it is known that September 3rd, a few French ships arrived at Charleston and they brought along with them the news that Dastang was sailing for Georgia with 25 ships of the line and 4,000 French troops. Lincoln and the French agreed on a plan of attack and they left for Savannah and when they left, they were leaving Charleston with over 2,000 men on September 11th. So the British troop strength that they were heading into was about 6,500 regulars at Brunswick, Georgia, which is about an hour to two hours south. Another 900 at Beaufort, which is also in South Carolina. So that's um, about maybe 45 minutes from Savannah. Um, so then we also had those guys under Colonel John Maitland and about 100 loyalists at Sunbury, Georgia. And Major General Augustine Prevost was in command of those troops from his base at Savannah. So these guys were like caught completely unprepared by the French fleet that began to arrive off Tybee Island near Savannah. So as I mentioned earlier, those barrier islands, Tybee's one of them. So they're really close. They're closing in at this point and nobody was expecting them. So, they recalled the troops stationed at Beaufort and Sunbury to aid in the city's defense. So, Captain Moncrief of the Royal Engineers was tasked with reconstructing, or constructing, sorry, fortifications to repulse the invaders. Some sort of wall or something that they, that would deter them from trying to get past it. This is what his job was. So, using 500 to 800 slaves working up to 12 hours per day, he constructed an entrenched defense line, which included redoubts nearly 1,200 feet long. And these were all along plains outside of the city. The British Royal Navy then contributed two overage frigates, the HMS Fowey and the HMS Rose. These guys landed their guns and most of their men to reinforce the land forces. In addition to this, the British also deployed the army brig or the armed brig Keppel and the armed ship Germain. The latter was from the East Florida Navy. There were also two galleys, Comet and Thunder, from East Florida that they called out to as well. Lastly, the British then armed two merchant vessels, the Savannah and the Venus. And this is when the battle begins because on September 12th, we start putting troops on the ground. An expedition in December of 1778 took Savannah with modest resistance from ineffective militia and Continental Army defenses. The Continental Army was then forced to regroup. And by June 1779, the combined army and militia forces guarding the city of Charleston numbered between 5,000 and 7,000 men. And they were all under the command of General Major General Benjamin Lincoln. And Major General Lincoln 
knew that he could not recapture the city of Savannah without naval assistance, and for this, he decided to turn to the French, who had entered the war as an American ally in 1778. So, the person that would end up coming to help would be the French Admiral Comte d'Estaing. And this French Admiral actually spent the first part of 1779 in the Caribbean, where literally all he did was his fleet and a British fleet monitored each other's movements. But he took advantage of these conditions to capture Granada in July before acceding to American requests for support against operations in Savannah. Alright, we are up to September 3rd. And this is like peak hurricane season if you don't know. And obviously it still was back then because it's noted as an uncharacteristically early arrival of French ships arrived at Charleston with the news that Deistang was sailing from the Caribbean to Georgia with 25 ships of the line and 4,000 French troops. Lincoln and the French agreed on a plan of attack. So, they then left Charleston with over 2,000 men on September 11th. Now, British troop strength in the area consisted of about 6,500 regulars at Brunswick, Georgia, another 900 at Beaufort, South Carolina, and they were under Colonel John Maitland, and then they had about 100 loyalists at Sunbury, Georgia, and Major General Augustine Prevost was in command of these troops from his base at Savannah. And he was completely caught off guard when the French fleet began to arrive off of Tybee Island. So the fact that they were coming at Tybee, they were so close to Savannah. It's one of the little barrier islands that protect from everything going on on the coast. So he then calls back his troops stationed at Beaufort and Sunbury to aid in the city's defense. Captain Moncrief of the Royal Engineers was tasked with constructing fortifications to repulse the invaders. So he did this using five to eight hundred slaves working up to 12 hours per day. And he constructed an entrenched defense line which included redoubts nearly 1,200 feet long on the plains outside of the city. So. The British Royal Navy then contributed two overage frigates, HMS Bowie and HMS Rose, and they landed their guns and most of their men to reinforce the land forces. In addition to this, the British also deployed the armed brig Keppel and the armed ship Germain. The latter was actually from East Florida Navy. There were then two galleys from East Florida, the Comet and Thunder. Lastly, the British armed two merchant vessels, the Savannah and the Venus. And it was at this point that the battle was set to begin. So on September 12th, Diestang begins landing troops below the city and they just begin moving in by September 16th, confident of a victory and believing that Maitland's reinforcements would be prevented from reaching Savannah by Lincoln, he offered Prevost the opportunity to surrender. Prevost delayed, asking for 24 hours of truce. 
Owing to miscommunication about who was responsible for preventing Maitland's movements, the waterways separating South Carolina's Hilton Head Island from the mainland were left unguarded. And Maitland was able to reach Savannah hours before the truce ended. Prevost, his response to D'Estaing's offer was a polite refusal despite the arrival of Lincoln's forces. So, we're up to September 19th, and Charles Marie de Trolong du Romain moved his squadron up the river and he exchanged fire with Comet, Thunder, Savannah, and Venus. The next day, the British scuttled Rose, which was leaking terribly, just below the town to impede the French vessels from progressing any further. They also burnt Savannah and Venus by scuttling Rose in a narrow part of the, of the canal. The British effectively blocked it. Consequently, the French fleet was unable to assist the American assault. So, Germain took up position to protect the north side of Savannah's defenses. Comet and Thunder had a mission of opposing any attempt by the South Carolina galleys to bombard the town. Over the next few days, the British shore batteries assisted Comet and Thunder in engagements with the two South Carolina galleys. During one of these, a severely damaged revenge. The French commandeer rejected the idea of assaulting the British defenses. He unloaded the cannons from his ship and began a bombardment of the city, rather than entrenched defenses. So this bore the brunt of the bombardment, which lasted from October 3rd to the 8th. The appearance of the town afforded a melancholy prospect, for there was hardly a house that had not been shot through. And with the bombardment, Failed, failing to have the desired effect, Diesting changed his mind and decided it was time to try an assault. He moved in part by the desire to finish the operation quickly, as scurvy and dysentery were becoming problems on its ship. And those are highly contagious, highly horrible diseases that you do not want to get a hold of. And a lot of his supplies were starting to run low. So, while a traditional siege operation would likely have succeeded eventually, it would have taken longer than Deasting was prepared to stay. On October 9th, against the advice of many of his officers, Deasting launched the assault against the British position that morning. The success depended in part of the secrecy of some of its aspects, which were betrayed to Provost well before the operations even began around 4 a.m. that morning. Fog caused troops attacking Spring Hill redoubt to get lost in swamps, and it was nearly daylight when the attack finally got underway. The redoubt on the right side of the British works had been chosen by the French Admiral in part because he believed it to be defended only by militia. In fact, it was defended by a combination of militia and Scotsmen from John Maitland's 71st Regiment of Foot. Fraser's Highlanders who had distinguished themselves as Stono Ferry. The militia included riflemen who easily picked off the white-clad French troops when the assault was underway. Admiral Deasting was twice wounded and Pulaski was mortally wounded. By the time the second wave arrived near the redoubt, the first wave was in complete disarray and the trenches below the redoubt were filled with bodies. Attacks attended as feints against the other redoubts of the British position were easily taken. 
The second assault column was commanded by the Swedish Count Herr von Steindick, who managed to reach the last trench and actually wrote in his journal that he had the pleasure of planting the American flag on the last trench. But the enemy renewed its attack and their forces were annihilated by crossfire. And he was forced back by an overwhelming number of British troops left with some two, 20 men, and all of which of these 20 men were wounded, including he himself. And he later wrote that the moment of retreat with the cries of our dying comrades pierced his heart with the bitterest of his life. An hour after carnage, the Estang ordered a retreat. On, on October 17th, Lincoln and Deesting abandoned the siege. The battle was one of the bloodiest of the war. And after the battle, Deesting would return to France, and Pulaski, who was mortally wounded, was taken to the USS Wasp and buried at sea on October 15th. Both the American and French would remain in the area until October 16th when Lincoln began an orderly withdrawal to Charleston. And here's what you've all been waiting for. Ghost time. Everyone says battlefields are always haunted and you know, I mean, I can't overly blame them. It's not like these men would have died peacefully. I mean, especially back in those days. And Lord even says that Spring Hill is where bulk of the attack took place but evidence has been uncovered as far away as Madison Square, deep in the heart of downtown Savannah, that would suggest that fighting actually took place there as well. And another thing connected to Madison Square is also that it is thought to be the location of a mass grave of casualties from the Battle of Savannah. Now, for the ghost stories. Talking again about Madison Square, it is most frequently spotted that the ghost of Sergeant William Jasper, whose spirit is possibly tied to Madison Square as it holds a statue of him. The spirit of William Jasper has been spotted countless times roaming Madison Square, most likely readying himself to fight the Redcoats once more. Jasper was killed during the Siege of Savannah, and he has a good reason to be on guard, as his spirit is not the only one to have been sighted on the grounds of Madison Square. Over the years, there have been steady intake of reports, people claiming to witness ghostly figures running toward them with their tea and crumpets in a bunch, only for the shadowy presences to vanish right before their very eyes. Perhaps spooked himself by the appearance of the Patriot William Jasper. I have one more for you guys. So, influenced by Benjamin Franklin, Pulaski decided to immigrate to America. And Pulaski believed in the possibilities of America and the freedom of ty tyranny. So, he joined the cause. And this cause would be the Revolutionary War. He quickly gained a reputation for his bravery and was even noted for saving the life of General George Washington. He rose through the ranks and became a Brigadier General and landed his own legion of men. During the Siege of Savannah, he was shot while rallying a charge as others retreated. 
His wound was so grave that most men would have died instantly, but Pulaski was able to hold on for two more days before succumbing to his injuries. In, in his death, Pulaski's reputation only grew in the eyes of the American patriots. And while they lost this particular battle, Pulaski's spirit lived on, helping to rally the Continental Army to victory from the British. Pulaski's burial site became a mystery, as no one knows exactly what happens to his remains, but after some digging, I found out that it was said that he was buried at sea. But the truth would not be discovered until 1996, over 200 years after his death. The Italian marble carved Pulaski Monument in Monterey Square was in desperate need of repair with cracks and stains and it tarnished its purpose. So the city of Savannah began the process of having the monument renovated in the mid-1990s. During the process of disassembling the monument for proper restoration, there was an incredible discovery. In the base of the monument, a small box was found, and inside the box were remains. Speculation soon grew. Were they the remains of Pulaski, or was he really buried at sea? Well, DNA testing was conducted, and while it was inconclusive, it was determined that the skeleton was consistent with the age of Pulaski, and the inflicted injuries matched historical records. In 2005, the remains were reinterred, this time with military honors. Like many of the squares in Savannah, Montreux Square is known for its ghostly activity. Even before DNA evidence connected Pulaski to the square, there were legends of his ghost downtown in Montreux. Common reports of people talking of ghostly encounters with a man dressed in revolutionary-era garb was the main thing, only they almost always disregarded him as a reenactor because, based on his accent, they thought he was like just reenacting everything. But upon giving him a second glance, they are startled because he seemingly disappears into thin air. Montreux Square was laid in the year of 1847 to commemorate the Mexican-American War's Battle of Montreux that occurred just a year earlier. But while the square is named in honor of the battle in which General Zachary Taylor's captured the city of Montreux, in the heart of the square stands the Casimir Pulaski Monument. And this is where people have seen his ghost the most. So, I really don't know what I think about ghostly appearances, but... I mean, the way some of these men died, it definitely, I think, could warrant a haunting if, you know, if those things are real. But it's definitely fun to think about. And I don't know, I probably will never fully have an answer to how I feel about this until I was, like, confronted with my own personal sighting. You know, I mean, I feel like it's one of those things that you almost have to experience for yourself. But it's kind of weird how we ended up finding those remains so many years later. And we never even knew that they were beneath our feet. But that is 
the legacy of Savannah. She's a beautiful city built upon her own dead. Think your city is haunted? Do you think your city is haunted? Well, if you do, hit me up at Hauntedology on Instagram or Twitter. Send me a DM or a comment or whatever letting me know that you think your city has a story or stories worthy enough to make it onto Hauntedology. Thank you guys so much for listening to Hauntedology. Another great episode is coming your way soon. And I cannot thank you enough. If you want to reach out to me, you can reach out on Twitter at Hauntedology or at Megan Noel underscore fit. M-E-G-A-N-N-O-E-L underscore fit. Or on Instagram at Hauntedology or at Megs underscore Noel. M-E-G-G-S underscore N-O-E-L. Thank you guys so much. Hauntedology is written and edited by me. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>